All right, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt, and I'm one of the serving pastors here, and today I have the, the privilege and the honor and the duty to share out of God's word with you guys today. Uh, we are going to be concluding this three-week Bible study series that we've been doing on the authority of Jesus. Uh, effectively, Mark's gospel is one where he presents Jesus's office from the beginning. <clears throat> Just to recap, Mark 1 once is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We can easily breeze past to that if we're just reading through our Bibles because it's kind of the, the opening statement. Um, but that is a loaded, loaded verse. The gospel means it's this event, this proclamation of the arrival of a new way of doing things. Uh, a new government would be proclaimed by a gospel. And that's what Mark is claiming is the event that exists with Jesus' arrival. Now, Jesus is his name. Christ is another title. It means the anointed one. For the Jewish people, they knew that they were awaiting this Messiah, which also means anointed one. That's just the Hebrew word. Who would come and restore things to the way that they should be. In general, people understand that the world is not as it should be, and to the Jewish people, their solution was God, and God sending a Messiah to restore the government, to restore the world, to restore the national stratification throughout the world. That's what they were expecting. Now, Mark says this is the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, Christ, the Son of God. That is the jump point for this gospel. We've been seeing in the last two weeks that the way Mark begins his storytelling is by listing uh, character qualifications for Jesus to uphold this title, the Christ, the Son of God. And two weeks ago, we studied how Jesus has some form of authority of calling that people could not deny. He walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two different companies of fishermen, and he just said, hey, come follow me, and they did. And we recognized how in many of our lives, we've seen how Jesus has placed a calling over it, and that we can't really deny that, and we've seen how Jesus has empowered us to become who he claims that we are. Last week, we talked about Jesus having an authority in word that when he preached in the synagogue, people were astounded, astonished, dumbfounded, because of the fact that when he spoke, he spoke from a place of authority, and something within them made them feel like, oh, I Apparently, I have consequence to follow what this man is saying. And then Jesus furthermore proved his authority in word when he cast out an unclean spirit out of a man who was sitting in the synagogue. Well, today, the final part of this sermon series is Jesus' authority in healing. Why don't we just read the passage first? Again, this is 129 through 45. I'm reading out of the ESV this morning. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. 
That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who are sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go on to the next towns that, we, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. The word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that uh, in this passage we see that you are both full of compassion and full of power. That is such a privilege, Jesus, that you being all-powerful yet choose to be compassionate and kind and that you reach out to the broken places and that you bring healing and you use your power to restore things that our environment has broken and even things that we ourselves have broken. Today, as we get into your word as a family, all of us have experienced brokenness throughout our weeks. Some of us greater, some of us less, but all of us certainly. And so, please come here today, Holy Spirit, with your power and your compassion, and permit yourself to speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we find in this passage a huge, long host of Jesus healing lots of people. And when we talk about healing, we're talking about physical, actual results from Jesus' ministry. Many times we are hesitant to, to come to Jesus with, with things that can actually be quantifiable, because we're either afraid that maybe we're, it's something that we're doing wrong or maybe that it's not something that's within Jesus' purview. But I would argue today that anything that we bring to Jesus has physical consequences. And even when we come to Jesus with our behavioral patterns that we're asking him to change, we're really talking about physical things as well. More and more as we uh, grow and understand the way the human brain works, the way the human body works, we come to see that our behavior, behavioral patterns affect us physically. Addiction to, to drugs or, or pornography or even social media eventually has chemical, leads to chemical dependence on these things, physiological changes within us. Um, experiences that we do frequently, especially damaging ones that we do habitually, leave patterns like ruts in our brains that, that eventually become hard to escape. When we're asking Jesus to change our behaviors, 
or asking Jesus to help us to stop being a certain way, we really are referring to deep, physical, literal healing. We are going to be talking about both dynamics of healing today as a church. We're going to be talking about the dynamic of this sort of ethereal, behavioral healing, the way that Jesus can uh, really grow a believer. We oftentimes call that sanctification. We'll be talking about that, but we also are talking about physical and literal healing. Uh, When we learn how Jesus has an authority to heal the sick and cast out demons, we are talking about that being a proof that Jesus can do more than that. If Jesus can cure the common cold just by his command, he also can free the drunkard of their addiction. He can do more, but it's certainly not less. Several mistakes that we can come into when we see the miracles of Jesus is that we merely allegorize them and say, see, this is a metaphor to how Jesus can help us to become better people. And that's true, but don't cut off the foundation. The reason we know that is because Jesus can do actual physical healings as well. So we're going to see that quite a bit. The first portion of today's passage that we we read has to do with Jesus immediately going somewhere. So where did he go? This is midday in a day in the life of Jesus. On Sabbath, he went to the synagogue, and that's where he preached in authority. That's where he cast out a demon. And it was common practice after synagogue for people to gather up at somebody's house, kind of like we do here. Sometimes we go to someone's house, or we go to a coffee shop or something, it is really common practice that post the synagogue program or service that people who attended would go spend time together. On this particular day, Jesus, with his new disciples James and John, go to these other disciples' houses, Simon and Andrew. Just a sidebar, I may accidentally say Peter a few times. Jesus will change Simon's name to Peter. It'll be a nickname. Uh, But in the beginning parts of Mark, Mark is careful to refer to him as Simon. Uh, So Simon and Andrew were brothers, and they lived, as most people did in the first century, with their family, so that's together, with their immediate family and their extended family. Now Jesus is in this household of Simon, and it just sparks their mind to tell Jesus, like, oh yeah, mother-in-law is sick in the back room with the fever. Jesus' reputation is starting to be one where people are just kind of coming to him because clearly Jesus can do stuff. Let's just start there. Jesus can do stuff. These are the beginnings of people familiarizing themselves with Jesus. They don't have this full idealized framework and idea of who Jesus is that we do today. This is the beginning. And uh, sort of like if, if you're new at a job and you're starting to do things well and then the boss comes to you and is like, hey, uh, Do you know anything about PowerPoints? And it's just random stuff that they just kind of start bringing to people who are shown to be skilled and dependable. And so Jesus is proving to be that on a higher level in a divine sort of way. So they come and tell tell him that that Simon's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. They immediately told him about her. It's such a quick response because of who Jesus has already proven to be. They already know that this is something within his purview that he may be able to help. Before we go any further, I want to talk about this idea of a fever. Luke says it's a high fever. Luke is the physician, right? So when he says it's a high fever, he's, um, he's going to be talking uh, on a medical level and, uh, and not exaggerating. So this was a very serious illness, but it also had uh, social implications in the first century. 
because in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 15, Moses is addressing the people of Israel, and he says, hey, if you don't walk in the faithfulness of God, then all of these things will come upon you. And he does this laundry list of horrifying things. And by verse 21, he says, including fever. So when people saw that uh, people were sick in the first century, there was an implication that this is something that either this person deserves or it's something that we deserve as a nation because we've fallen short. In those types of situations, uh, self-righteousness develops, and that's why we see in Jesus' ministry that the religious kinds of people have a callousness towards the sick. You, you remember there's a, there's a woman who is, uh, who is disabled for a really long time, for 18 years, and when Jesus healed her, the religious people said, ah, oh, she should have gotten healed on one of the other six days. Today's the Sabbath. So heartless, and it's because it's their idea of the physical realm came from this idea of... of uh, consequence to failures. Now, we don't get any, anything in here that says that she had a fever because she was a horrible person or because the nation of Israel was disenfranchised or anything like that. But it, it does go to show that when Jesus goes and, and heals her, that the cause of a person's physical state or their emotional or behavioral state is inconsequential to Jesus. This is a love that's different than ours. We, in our limited amount of resource, when we see people who are in need, oftentimes we first evaluate them in our minds. Does this person deserve a dollar? Does this person deserve my time? Why is this person in this place? It seems like it's their fault. We see in Jesus' character here that regardless of the cause of something, he's willing to bring deliverance. This study today is not just a study of whether or not Jesus can heal, but how he does it and what manner he approaches those he needs to heal. Let's, let's read it. This is um, verse 31. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her, lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Notice the, the personality of that. Notice the intimacy. He comes into the house, and he takes her by the hand. He reaches for her, and he bears her burden by picking her up. And in that act, the fever just leaves her. There's nothing sensational about this, but everything relational about this. There's no slamming of the palm of the hand on the forehead. Jesus doesn't even call out the illness by symptom. He doesn't even command it out of her. It's just his presence of reaching out and picking her up and bearing her burden. And in consequence, the fever just leaves her. And then what does she do? She begins to serve them. This is probably like... She's probably a grandma by here, so she's, she's probably cooking for them. She's preparing a table for them. This is probably who this woman normally is. And in her fever, in her sickness, she was really just relegated back to the back room to just relax and try to heal and get better. Now, I, I would argue to say that whenever we have inhibitions, whether physical or behavioral, things that we're struggling in as believers or just as people, if you're not a believer today, it always keeps us from doing the things that we really should be doing, the things in our identity that we want to be and want to be doing, like this, this woman, this mother-in-law of Simon, who would probably be serving them if she wasn't with this illness, and when Jesus heals her, she immediately starts to serve him. We're going to get back to that in just a second, because I want to compare that 
to the leper a little bit later, but let's move on. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and they healed many who were sick, or excuse me, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Okay, so at the evening at sundown, that's significant because remember this is a day in the life of Jesus. This is the Sabbath. So everybody is supposed to be indoors. They're not supposed to bear burdens. That would be legally inaccessible to them. So they're staying at home, but they're biting at the bit. This is kind of like Black Friday. It's kind of like a doorbuster. When the sun goes down, because the Hebrew day uh, organizes the day from evening to evening. When the sun goes down, it ceases to be Sabbath, and the people right away start gathering up their loved ones, and they're bringing it to the house where they know Jesus is, at Simon's house. And they're lined up at Simon's door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. When people were coming to him, he wasn't turning any away. He was healing them. He was delivering them and casting out their demons. When people are coming to Jesus with these things, they are assuming a position that he is somehow influential over these realms, that he has a power over the physical, that he has a power over the demonic. And when they submit themselves to him, he shows himself actually that. But there's this interesting thing that he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. I don't want to dig into that too much, but it does suffice to say that that's going to continue to come up several times to the book of Mark, that Jesus is always going to be owning his, his uh, revelation. If, if he's going to be revealed to the world as the Son of God, it's going to be his word and his way, not in the profane mouths of demons. Let's just uh, move on into verse Verse 35 to 39. So the night is long. He's healing many people, but very early in the morning when things settle down, he slips out and he departs into a desolate place and there he prayed. This is a common practice in Jesus's life. We see that any opportunity he's given, he gets away from the people to spend intimate and personal time with God. It seems like in those times he's aligning himself with God's will and what God wants him to do to that, for that day. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him Apparently in the Greek, that's a really aggressive word, searched for him. It's like they've gone a-hunting. I don't know if Peter woke up and there's a bunch of people lined up at his door again, and he's like, well, I can't do anything with these people. Send Jesus out to him. And they're like, oh, yeah, he ain't here. And so Simon gathers some people, and he's, and he's hunting around for Jesus, and he finds him in a desolate place. I would imagine that that's probably a hard place to find someone. But it, he does find him, and he says to him, everyone's looking for you. They're probably there because they have more sick people. They're probably there. Maybe some people have come back because there's other things that they haven't been healed from. Maybe they came to Jesus because they had a really deep high fever, and then the next day they're like, you know what, this hangnail's been bothering me too. Let's go back over to Simon's house and let's see if Jesus can take care of that. Um, so here, Jesus is given an opportunity to heal more people, to set more people free, but does Jesus do it? Spoiler alert, he doesn't. And he said to them, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. I've been personally growing and sort of exploring what it is us as believers have to do, the, the responsibility that we have in this world for praying over those who are sick, praying over those who are stuck in 
behavioral patterns and addictions that, that by Jesus' grace, he said that all authority has been given to us and then in, uh, to him, and then he lays that authority back to us, and freely by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can further the kingdom of God. And so I've been curious as to how it is that we properly uh, utilize that authority. And I've been wrestling with something. You know, there, there's this... Uh, there's this common stance that says that Jesus, we're always going to assume that it's Jesus' will to heal somebody. But whenever somebody's sick, we're always going to assume that it's Jesus' will to, to take away that sickness, to free them, to loosen their, their disabilities. Because in, this, in Scripture, whenever we see people come to Jesus, he doesn't ever turn them away and say, no, this is actually not my will. So you stick with that cold, and I'll see you later. And I, and I think that that's a, that's a viable position. I wouldn't have explained it in depth if I didn't think it was a viable position. But there, there's still this, that sometimes Jesus doesn't show up for these people. Why? Because it's, it's just, it's not his will. He has other things that he's going to do, other things that God has placed on his heart for those people who showed up at Simon's door. Jesus ain't coming. He goes on to the next town. So we have to at least assume that that in some cases, some people who are sick, it's not Jesus' will to lift that from them. Not because he doesn't have the power to, and not because he's calloused and unkind, but because Jesus has a deliberate will. Not just blind positivism, not just blind benevolence, but a direction of the way he wants his kingdom to move. We see that here. That he moves out of Capernaum into other towns of the Galilee. And uh, he says this, why does he want to go to the other towns? So that we could heal all of them, right? No. Let's go into the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. What was Jesus' will? What was Jesus' assignment when he was here? To further the kingdom of God, to preach. He, and so he came to tell people what God was like, because we, as we studied last week, he was the, he's the authority of who God is, and he himself represents everything that God is in perfection. And so anywhere that he was, God's kingdom was furthering, and that's what he wanted to do. Now, healing and casting out demons is a part of that is a part of furthering God's kingdom because the brokenness of disease and demonic oppression, they do not fall under the way that God operates. And Jesus going out and healing is him also furthering the kingdom. But his main priority is to be preaching. And when he goes to the, throughout the Galilee to the different towns, he does preach in their synagogues and he also casts out demons. He doesn't really have one without the other. What's, what's interesting about this, though, in, in the case of Peter's or Simon's mother-in-law and in other places in Mark and other places throughout the gospel, there is this motif of when Jesus sets somebody free, he welcomes them into their kingdom, he's furthering God's kingdom, that they, they kind of step into this requirement of, of Jesus' kingship, Jesus' lordship. Oftentimes when Jesus heals somebody, he tells them to go do something, and they do it to affirm what Jesus has, uh, 
has freed them from. It's, it's a trust act. It's it in and of itself. It's not what heals them. Like the, there is a man who is, who is blind, and Jesus spits in, the mud and, uh, spits in the dirt, makes clay out of the mud, and puts it on the guy's eyes, and he tells the guy, go wash it out in this pool. It's not because the pool is, is some spooky, powerful thing that then brings healing. It's because Jesus is directing this person, and when Jesus directs somebody, they have the opportunity to either submit themselves under that command or to not. When, when we see that Simon's mother-in-law is healed, she literally begins to serve Jesus. She submits herself under his authority and, and gives back to him. There's this interchange, there's, there's this exchange. And I don't want it to seem like it's a scratch my back since I've scratched your scenario between us and God. But there, there, there's a man who comes to Jesus because he was, he was lame and he was, he was laying on, on his bed and Jesus healed him. He said, pick up your bed, go out and, um, and, you, and be healed. And so this guy goes out, and uh, the Pharisees, they stop him and say, you shouldn't be carrying your bed. It's the Sabbath. Don't bear any weight. And he said, well, yeah, the guy who healed me told me to carry, carry my bed. And they said, who healed you? He said, um, I don't know. Jesus goes out and finds this guy. This is a really unique situation. Jesus goes back to find this guy, and he says, hey, look, you're healed. You're well. Now sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Jesus says, I've delivered you, not because you're a great person, because you've deserved it, because this thing wasn't your fault, or anything like that. Out of my grace, I've healed you, but now's the opportunity for you to submit yourself into my kingdom under my authority, because you are now vulnerable to something worse coming upon you, something worse than paralysis. Now, that story ends ominously when that guy goes back to the Pharisees and goes, hey, I found the guy who healed me. It's that guy. Go take it up with him. If you're upset with me, it's uh, his fault. When Jesus brings the kingdom into somebody's life, frees somebody, heals somebody, he empties them of their burdens but there's always an opportunity for something else to get in if it's not Jesus himself, something worse. What happens when, when Jesus heals somebody and they don't submit themselves under his authority? Uh, we, we see it in verses 40 through 45. Firstly, I wanna say, even though I'm using this leper as an example of somebody who disobeys Jesus, it doesn't make him the worst person in the world. We all do this, but I, I wanna I read the account. A leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling and saying to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it, to spread the news so that Jesus would no longer could no longer enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and the people were coming to him from every quarter. All right, so this guy, he starts out with a really, really great amount of faith, because his, his, uh, the reason he approaches Jesus is because he believes that Jesus has the power to free him of his leprosy. That's 
a, that requires a lot of faith. Jesus is not a doctor. Jesus is a traveling rabbi, but he says that he assumes the position that he knows that Jesus can heal him. So he says, you can make me clean, but it's preceded by this. If you will, you can make me clean. He knows Jesus' power. He doesn't know Jesus' love. That alone does require faith. But let's talk a second about leprosy. Leprosy is not one disease in particular. It describes many different skin, uh, skin conditions of decay. And, and it had physical and socially damaging consequences. Physically, um, you could begin losing feeling. You could begin losing limbs. I don't want to get too grotesque. But the, one of the greatest curses about leprosy is the social isolation of it. It was so heavily contagious that it was quarantined. And so this man, he could, he could walk at, clo- at the closest within 50 paces of any non-leper. So he had to keep his distance from everybody. Um, he had to walk around shouting, unclean, unclean, so people wouldn't accidentally touch him. And there was really no hope for lepers. This was another condition that people oftentimes considered a punishment for sin. And this one, there's actually quite a bit of precedent for that. In the Old Testament, there are several people who are stricken with leprosy out of a punishment. Uh, Moses' sister Miriam is stricken with leprosy. Gus's poem this morning referred to that. Uh, There's a a little stooge of Elisha's Elisha's name, Gehazi. He's stricken with leprosy because he, um, he does this really crooked thing to steal some money. Or also King Uzziah, who was a Davidic king and a good king, he went into the temple and tried to offer sacrifices, and because of that, God struck him with leprosy for the rest of his life. So with the, the added insult to injury is if you had leprosy, not only were you physically in pain and uncomfortable, you were socially cast out because of the boundaries of your quarantine, but then also people looked down on you in judgment, wondering if there was something that you did that caused this. So this is a man of hopelessness, yet he finds his hope in Jesus. But the only thing he doesn't know is what Jesus' character is like, whether or not Jesus is willing to fix fix this leprosy for him. But Jesus' response is this, I will be clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. Actually, let's, let's switch that over. Jesus reaches out in his hand and touches him and says to him, I will be clean. You see how Jesus is breaking the boundary of this disease. And in, uh, in this man's isolation, Jesus enters into that isolation and intimately reaches out and gives this man something that he hasn't probably experienced since he was diagnosed with leprosy, personal human interaction. Jesus' healing is never void of his love Jesus is not merely a resource for recovery. Jesus is a place of of restoration, of of nurturing, and of that kind of joyful love. Now, when Jesus reaches out and touches him, it precedes this man's cleansing. Jesus doesn't touch him because he's now been healed of leprosy, and he's like, look, it's good. Let me touch your face. This This is all fine. No, Jesus touches him first, and then the man is cleansed. It's because this man's brokenness, this man's decay, is not contagious to Jesus. Jesus' holiness and Jesus' whole 
goodness is contagious to this man. Jesus is so overwhelming with holiness and goodness and life and wholeness that this man catches that from Jesus. Now, Jesus unusually is pretty aggressive with this man. He, he sternly charged him. You can kind of almost picture Jesus wagging his, th- his finger at him saying, see that you say nothing to everyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. So um, again, we have Jesus saying, don't go out and tell people who did this to you. I want you to first go over to the priests. In Leviticus chapter 14, there was operation, the rite for cleansing a leper. It was something that happened if if this was not a lifelong leprosy and sometimes it just went away, then these priests could utilize the instructions of, of Leviticus 14 to restore this person who was formerly a leper back into community. Now, Jesus wants this man to do that first. And why does he want to do it? For a proof to them, to the priests. But this this leper, he he doesn't take that that advice. But but I'll get to that in just a second. I do want to say this. Again, in in this culture of massive healing in in the church at large, there's this there's sometimes this position that's like, throw away your walking stick throw away your wheelchair, throw away your meds, don't even go see your doctor, you're healed. And in good faith, you don't even have to go to your doctor and find out whether or not you're healed. Just trust in Jesus. And there's sort of this romanticized, helter-skelter way about of receiving healing within the church. And that's, that's not the way we should do things. That's not the way even Jesus does things. He submits this man to the rights of verification of his cleansing. But, see, the thing uh, is that the man he doesn't do that. Instead, he goes out and he starts talking freely about it. I mean, he probably was really, really excited, but he is being disobedient to Jesus. What's interesting is he goes and he spreads the news. That word is the same word that describes what it is that Jesus wanted to do. Back in verse 38, he says, uh, let us go into the next town that I may preach there also. That's the same word. This man was preaching about the cleansing of Jesus, but what's the consequences of that? Because this man was going out and preaching, it actually hindered what Jesus wanted to do. Jesus wanted to go into the towns and preach, right? But because this man stepped out of line and did the very thing that Jesus told him not to do, Jesus' work was hindered. Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. The very thing that Jesus wanted to do, he was unable to do because this man was being disobedient. Now, so Jesus had to be out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Wherever Jesus is geographically, it doesn't hinder the fact that he's still gaining notoriety and popularity, but it does keep him from doing the very thing that he said, I came here to go into the towns and preach, and now he couldn't go into the towns because this man was preaching instead. When we receive Jesus' generosity and we don't submit ourselves to his lordship, it hinders what it is that he wants to do. Jesus has a will. Remember, this man came to Jesus petitioning Jesus' will, knowing that Jesus has a desire, a direction of how Jesus wants to operate. But when we don't do that, then we hinder what it is that Jesus does want to do. You know, as I've not been in ministry a very long time, but I've been in ministry long enough to where I've seen multiple accounts of people getting to glean the beautiful generosity of God. We see people who've, well, I've seen people who've 
destroyed their marriage because of addiction in their life. And then Jesus comes into the, that family and, and the man's forgiven and the home is rebuilt and restored again by the, that same man even though he's forgiven and has received the kind of forgiveness that only Jesus offers still doesn't come to know Jesus. And just like Jesus said to the, the disabled man, I've seen worse things come upon people. I, I think of the parable that Jesus tells that says, our generation is like this. Like if somebody had one evil spirit and it was cast out of them and they kind of, that person restored their life and started doing things and is all hunky-dory and happy, that demon comes back not finding a place to otherwise to go and comes back to that person and sees that the vacancy is not yet occupied by, by holiness, by Jesus. And so that guy bring, that demon brings seven worse demons and that person's current condition is worse than his first, Jesus says. Is that true? Is what true? That Jesus said that? That story that, story that I told about a, about a marriage? About the demon? Do I believe that's real? Jesus says the generation is like that. So I think he's referring to something that does happen. I don't think he's referring to a particular situation. We could talk about that another time. But what I, what I want to say is this. Jesus is not just a source of restoration for us. He is, though. He is a source of restoration, but that's not just what he is. He's a preacher of the gospel who wants to bring the kingdom into our lives. He wants us to be restored to who we are. If we are Simon's mother-in-law who likes to serve people in the household, he wants to free us from our, our physical inhibitions, our spiritual inhibitions, our behavioral inhibitions that keep us from being who it is that we actually want to be so that we can do that. Ultimately, all people have an internal desire to walk and fellowship with God. And for all of us, Jesus has made a way to restore that condition to us. Our fellowship with God is broken down for so many different reasons because people have sinned against us that's made us think that God is, is capricious and just doesn't care about the things that can happen to us. We're separated from fellowship with God because we desire things more greatly than we desire God himself. But ultimately, it's all of it is sin. Sin separates us from God, and Jesus himself came to break down the consequences of sin so that way we can experience the goodness that is being who we were actually meant to be, children fellowshipping with a God who loves them. Jesus is in our lives to heal us of things. This, this passage, this story of the leper, uh, it's, it's something that, Powerfully, Jesus always brings to my devos or my sermon study or whatever, November of every single year. I know that that sounds weird, but November of every single year. In November 2010, I was struggling with addiction. Um, Christina and I broke up because I was engaging in, in addiction and I needed just some time to, to work on that with Jesus. I stepped down from ministry. Uh, I, I felt like the leper. I felt physically uh, dependent on my addiction. I felt socially isolated, and I felt ashamed and untouchable. And I was reading this passage, 
This was, again, November 2010. And I see just this how, how this man says it. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. And that just resounded within me. If you, if you know Jesus this morning, if you don't know Jesus this morning, I just want to say that Jesus can break things in our lives. The only question is if that's his will and if we're willing to do what it, what it is he's calling us to do to receive it. So I was, I was praying over that and I was like, Jesus, I know that you can break this addiction in my life. Will you do it for me? And I just went back to the passage and I just kept reading and I see what Jesus says to the celebrity. He says, I will be ye cleansed. And I haven't touched that addictive substance since November 2010. And now it's November. Now that's eight years ago. And what, what, what I want to share with you guys today by sharing that personal anecdote, that's not preaching, that's just sharing with you guys testimony. What I want, the reason I want to share that with you guys is because all of us have those things in our lives that maybe are shameful or maybe are so broken that we think that they can't ever, ever be fixed. And my, my encouragement for you today is to let that very thing be the thing that you bring to Jesus. With this idea, Jesus, I know you can heal me in this, that you have the authority over this, that you are in charge over addictions, that you are in charge over physical brokenness, that you are in charge over uh, emotional trauma from hard memories, and that you can fix them, but will you? It's, Jesus' restoration in our lives isn't always what we want it to be or what we expect it to be. Sometimes he, you're, you're, you're waiting for your healing at the proverbial Simon's front door and Jesus doesn't show up that day. But Jesus will always restore even if it's not in the, in the way that you expect. But my encouragement today is that my experience has been that Jesus is always good. He's always the God who reaches down bearing the weight of the person like he did with Simon's mother-in-law. He's always the person who reaches out and touches the untouchable like he did with the leper. Now, for those of us who are non-believers today, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. My invitation to you guys is to say this. Jesus is the foremost authority over broken things. And the very things in our lives that are physically true, namely our death, is something over which he's championed by proof of his resurrection. And I would encourage non-believers to trust Jesus with your very lives and see how his kindness is a kindness that's always reaching and always picking up, always bearing the burdens himself. Because he can. And even though the things that we may want him to do in our lives aren't always what he's willing to do. He will do something. Just like, just like those people who show up at, at Simon's door, maybe for non-believers today who are exploring this idea of Jesus, the very best you can say is, I think Jesus can do stuff. That's a place to start with. For those of us who are believers today, we have experiences of things that Jesus has broken in our lives. Maybe, it, like me, it's addictive behavioral patterns. Maybe for, for you, it's the trauma of things done to you. Maybe, maybe it is a physical healing. I believe in those. My encouragement to you is to examine your service unto the Lord this morning. I don't want to fear monger 
and just belabor this idea that a worse thing could come upon us when we're not submitting ourselves to the service of Jesus Christ. I don't want to just fear monger, but it is a truth. Jesus doesn't just heal us for the sake of ease. He heals us for the sake of service, that he could restore us to be what we're made to be. And you were made to be this morning so much, each of you different things, but the one thing that we all share is all of us were meant to walk with Jesus. We're meant to serve our God and experience the kindness of his good pleasure upon us. And that's something that we have because Jesus has come down and reached out to us to bear our weight and to touch the untouchable things in our lives. Our God is not just powerful, he's compassionate. Our God is not just a healer, he is Lord. And yes, we come to Jesus with our brokenness, but we come to Jesus for our assignment as well. Even Jesus himself was not without a submission when he goes in the morning to pray to his God. What is your calling this morning? Do you know it? Maybe you don't, that's okay. Spend some time with Jesus, know what that is, and if there's something keeping you from doing that, an inhibition, a brokenness, Submit that to Jesus. If he wills, he can. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good as well as powerful, and we thank you for that. A powerful, malevolent is nothing more than a dictator, which you could be because you are Lord. An impotent good is nothing but cotton candy, and you are not that. You are good and powerful, and we here who know you have experienced the goodness of your restoration, of your deliverance, and we're here today as restored vessels, willing to be whatever it is you've called us to be, to serve you. Protect us, Jesus, from disobeying your direction in our lives and hindering what it is that you want to do with your kingdom. And as we receive communion this morning for those of us who are believers, let it be a reminder to us that our Jesus in the ultimate reaching down and touching the untouchable came to this world to die on the cross to make atonement for our sins. Jesus, if... If there are people who don't yet know you in this room, maybe they've been coming to church for a long time, maybe they're raised in a Christian home, and they, they realize that they, that they don't walk with you, that they haven't re- experienced your healing and your deliverance, pray that you would come to them this morning. Enter into their place like you entered into Simon and Andrew's house. Reach down, take them by the heart's hand, and direct them toward yourself. This is a place of healing. You are one of healing. You're also Lord. And I pray, Jesus, for my friends here, my church, the best thing that I could pray over them, that you would be Lord over them. The greatest thing that I could pray for for my brothers and sisters is not that they would all be healed and that they would all have ease in life, but that they would be submitted to your lordship and experience the goodness of that. When we don't stop you 
from entering into a place for whatever reason, you show up there in your goodness in your kingdom. Jesus, I pray that you would break down hindrances in our lives and that you would show up and that you would come out and preach the good news of your gospel, proclaim goodness. I pray that my brothers and sisters would be under your lordship as I pray for myself, that I too would be under your lordship. You are a good God and you are a powerful God. In Jesus' name, amen.